Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Anna Zimmerman, the host of the Mighty Littles podcast. I am very excited to have you join us today. Today, we're going to be talking to Alicia about her experience in the NICU after delivering a baby at 28 weeks. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really glad that you can be here. Why don't we start off with having you introduce yourself to the Mighty Littles listeners? All right. My name is Alicia, and I am a mom Um, to five children that live in my home. I did have two second trimester losses, so I guess I have seven children, Um, but I have five living at my house with me, and my baby that was in the NICU was Ella, and she's my youngest. How old is Ella now? Ella is eight months old now. Eight months old. And how old is your oldest? Uh, my oldest is 12. Is 12. Oh, you really have all the ages and ages and stages, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Are, is it a mix of boys and girls? Yep. I have two girls. Then I have two boys. And the two babies we lost were also boys. And then I have Ella, my little girl at the end. Excellent. Well, huge congratulations on your big, beautiful family. That's awesome. Thank you. So, Let's talk just briefly about your pregnancy and when you kind of knew you were going to end up with uh, Ella being in the NICU. I feel like I need to precursor her. She's number five. And I really felt really strongly that we were supposed to have a little girl after we had had, we had had, we, I think we had three kids at the time when I felt like, all right, like, we should probably be winding down on the kid. Like we're not in the middle of let's have more kids, but I just knew that we were supposed to have a little girl. So we got pregnant and I lost that baby at 20 weeks and his name was Logan. And then I got pregnant again and that baby is Jacob and he's now four. And so I had two boys and two girls and I loved that I had my even number of kids and two girls and two boys and it was perfect and everybody would say that. And I agreed, but I still knew that there was this little girl and I don't even know how I knew it. And I used to hear stories like that and thought people were crazy, but I knew just like I knew that I had four other kids. I knew that I had this little girl somewhere and that she was meant to be in our family. So we decided to try for our fifth baby. And in early um, 2018, I got pregnant and lost that baby at about six weeks. I was back to my even numbers and I was like, all right, we're good. And then we decided to move to Massachusetts as a family. And when we got here, we decided, okay, let's try for that little girl one more time. And we got pregnant with her. And I knew from the beginning of the pregnancy that it wasn't the one I was expecting. And I thought it was a boy. And I was right. And when we found out he was a boy, I walked out of the appointment and I said to my husband, oh, no, I think this means we have to have six kids because this isn't our little girl. So we lost that pregnancy at 16 and a half weeks. And that was a year and a half ago. Do you know why? You lost the pregnancies at 20 and 16 weeks? Um, No, we don't. So the first time they told me, oh, this is a fluke. There was nothing with his body. There was nothing with his placenta. They said it was like a one in a million shot. And we don't know what happened. So sorry for your loss. There's no need to do any further testing because it looks like a fluke. And then the second one happened. It felt less like a fluke and more like lightning striking again. (laughs) Right. 
It was hard. And I did not feel confident in trying for this little girl again. And I remember telling my husband, like, I have one more like attempt for this little girl. If she's going to hitch a ride on this family, it's got to happen right now. (laughs) And so we like, they gave us the go ahead to get pregnant after a 16 week loss. They said to wait a cycle. And I didn't feel comfortable with that because with our other one, they had made us wait three months. And so we cut the difference knowing that none of our kids were getting any younger. We waited two months after we lost that one and we got pregnant right away. And I knew from the beginning it was her, like I knew. And so people would say, do you know what you're having? And I would say, yeah, we're having a girl. I totally knew. So fast forward, we're like through the first trimester, we're done having drama. Like it wasn't dramatic. It was a good first trimester. And then we had decided not to tell anybody in the whole wide world. I even debated not getting prenatal care because I didn't want to acknowledge the fact that we were doing this again. And I was afraid of getting my hopes up. And But we did have prenatal care. Everything was fine. Everything was going really well. And then at 15 weeks during church on Mother's Day, I started bleeding very heavily. And I thought I was miscarrying. And we pulled our kids out of church. And we went straight to the hospital. And I called my mom on the way, like, this is not your typical Mother's Day call. I love you. This is not why I'm calling, though. I am pregnant, and I'm losing this baby. And I cried and cried and cried, and I am not a crier, and I was so sad. And we went in. They checked for her heart rate, and they couldn't find it. And I remember thinking, of course you're not going to find it. She's gone. And then they found it, and I lost it and cried and cried. (laughs) And they were so sweet and so kind in the anyway they were like it's okay but then they had to tell me you are only 15 weeks and you are bleeding heavily if you do not stop bleeding we have to terminate your pregnancy even though your baby has a heart rate and that was maybe the worst thing anybody's ever told me in my whole life was that I needed to possibly terminate my pregnancy if I couldn't maintain the pregnancy safely for me so I can't they, imagine hearing that news. It's uh, devastating and it's got to be even more devastating after having these other two losses around the same time. I know they were a little bit later, but but around the same time. And gosh, in your heart of hearts, you knew that this this little girl was in your family and you you're bleeding and you think you're losing her. And then there's a heartbeat and you're relieved. And then they say, However, you might still lose her. I mean, I, that that just kind of epitomizes the rockiness and the roller coaster that can happen with pregnancies and with parenting sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was it was still like we still didn't know for sure she was a girl and knowing that I had this bond with her because I had the bond and because I felt so strongly about it, I felt like I felt like everything would be okay, but I didn't know that everybody else felt that way. So I felt a little bit like nobody else was going to fight for her like I would. Okay. So when they were saying she might not make it because she's not old enough and you're bleeding, I felt a little frustrated that I knew she was supposed to make it and that they were kind of giving up on her. (laughs) And I wasn't giving up and 
it was more than just I haven't given up. It was I know that she's going to be okay, but nobody else believes me. It's it's the mom's job to believe 100% that their baby is going to be okay. And it's my job as the doctor to kind of lay out what the obstacles are to that. And it doesn't mean that that I'm giving up, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you exactly where the odds were stacked for or against you and your baby. And and sometimes those are just impossible conversations. But it is your job as the mom, as the dad, as the family to believe 100% that, that this is going to be okay right up until I tell you that there's no possibility. Right. And I had had these two other losses before where I did not regret having that hope even though it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. I remember not feeling the baby move, the first baby that we lost. I remember I couldn't feel him moving, and then we did find out he had died. And I remember asking myself, did I regret feeling hopeful that he would just start moving? And I don't regret feeling hopeful. And so I think it's a smart thing as a, like, as a doctor talking to patients to realize like it's okay to let them still hope until there's absolutely zero hope. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't regret it. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. You should you should hold on to that hope at, at all costs until you're seeing on ultrasound that there's no heartbeat. You should hold on to that hope. So they decided not to admit me because the bleeding slowed and they sent me home. Three weeks later, I was back in the hospital with more bleeding and they admitted me this time because the bleeding didn't slow in the triage area and they did an ultrasound and found a subchorionic hemorrhage probably due to the fact that my placenta was right up against my cervix so they said they don't call it placenta previa yet because I was only at that point I guess 18 weeks so I think you have to be much farther along than I was to have it official. (laughs) In order for it to be official, you do have to be further along because, you know, when you first get pregnant, your uterus is pretty small. And so the placenta can be down by the cervix. But as baby grows and uterus expands, oftentimes as the uterus expands, the placenta will get pulled up for lack of a better term, right? Like it's implanted in an area that once the uterus grows, won't be sitting right on top of the cervix. So early on, it may be worrisome for a previa, but not all of those that are worrisome for a previa actually end up being a placental previa when you get out towards 30 or 34 weeks. And because mine was on the edge, they had said, this is probably just an injury and it will probably heal. And so they knew we had a massive amount of blood in my uterus and they could see where it was and they measured it. But, and that's when I found out she was a girl, was at that same ultrasound. And hearing it out loud for real, I again lost it. These are like, I lost it the first time we heard her heartbeat when I thought I lost her. And then I lost it when I found out she was a girl. And the rest of the time, I feel like I held it together. I don't remember crying a lot, but those two times I remember the ultrasound tech had to leave the room <laughs> because I could not gather myself. She said, I'm going to give you a minute while yeah. you cry. And my husband was like, what's wrong? You already knew she was a girl. And all I could think was, I know her and she's going to be okay. And those two things just kept running through my mind when I was so scared and so overwhelmed and she was still not at viability. 
And I just, I know her and she's going to be okay. Yeah. So when you were crying after they told you it was a girl, was it tears of joy because this is the girl that I've been waiting for and fighting for? Was it tears of, oh my gosh, this is the girl I've been knowing and fighting for and, and it's not going well? Or I feel like it was absolute relief. Like... A knowledge like she is just fine and she is meant to be here and this is her and you're gonna be okay like absolute surety and it was later that those feelings they ebb and flow and they would go away and they'd come back but in that moment it was absolute relief okay. which is so crazy because I'm admitted into the hospital being told at any moment I could go in for surgery and terminate my pregnancy and I am crying for joy that this is because it was a girl <laughs> right but it was like the intuition I just knew you like just everything. knew yep oh I totally knew yep I did not always hold on to that knowledge but I did know at that moment at that moment so what happened next a week and a half later I had another bleed one of the most interesting parts of the story I feel like is I called my husband told him he needed to get home right away he was 45 minutes away and on his way back to help me And I remember telling him, like, I don't know what to do. And I was pacing my bathroom while bleeding everywhere. I remember calling him about three times. And on the third time, he said, you probably need to call an ambulance. And I knew that's what I should have done, but I needed someone to tell me. And so it was it's been interesting how often someone else in the middle of a crisis needs to like sit you down and say, this is what needs to happen. Like you need to sit down and call an ambulance. You need help. But I couldn't think that for myself. I was in so much distress and so scared. By the time I got to the hospital that day, the bleeding slowed all the way down and I did not get admitted again. And they sent me home. They did an ultrasound a few days later with like just outpatient and the bleed had they think that the massive amount of blood in my uterus had just evacuated which is why it was so much so on a new ultrasound there was no bleeding it was all fine and we had had these plans to go to utah for our summer vacation with our kids and my dad had flown from utah to help us get there because my husband had to stay back to work and we weren't sure if i should be traveling and we ended up meeting with like three different doctors going through the ultrasounds meticulously, and they decided the placenta by then was in normal range, everything had moved and was fine, and they had asked that we decide for ourselves, but they would not, like they said, be careful, but you're welcome to go if you're safe, and so we thought that was the end of it, we were going to go to Utah, I was going to stay um, with like modified bed rest until it had been two weeks from my last bleeding episode. And so that was the plan is go to Utah, keep take it easy for two weeks while my family took my kids. And the problem here in Massachusetts is that we don't have that much support for like the kids to just go off with cousins for the day. And so that was one of the deciding factors was, well, I have more help over the summer with all of the kids if I go to Utah, and I would. And so I figured I could bed rest easily in Utah or in Massachusetts, it's harder being the only adult while my husband's at work. So we decided to go and everything was fine for a few weeks. And then I 
had another pig episode of bleeding and went to the hospital. They ended up life lighting me to the University of Utah Hospital because they had a bigger NICU. And at that point, I was 24 weeks and they gave me magnesium. They gave me the steroid shots and then everything slowed down again and they let me go home. <laughs> And at that point, my doctor said, I don't want you traveling back to Boston. This is turning into chronic abruption and you um, are probably not going to make it home. <laughs> so um, without having a baby, unless you can have three weeks without an episode of bleeding. And, and that was the high risk doctor in Utah that had decided I'm not comfortable with this. And I agreed. I did not want to be traveling with a chronic abruption or whatever it was. So we sent my husband back home. Um, instead of going home with him, we sent him back home to, he had come for a few weeks and then we sent him back and extended my stay with the kids for another three weeks. And my sister-in-law took the kids for a week, um, up to Idaho and, um, just to give me a break. But that same day that they left, I had a, a, the final episode. I, it was about every two to three weeks I'd end up in the hospital getting checked either hospitalized or sent home from 15 weeks on. So now I'm at 27 weeks and six days and I am at my in-laws house by myself. My kids have just left and I end up bleeding again. I had my, um, my high risk doctor in Utah's cell phone number he had given me and I texted him and told him what was happening. And he said, head to labor and delivery and, then I was dilating, but I was still only at a one. And I told them, my husband is in Boston and he's, it's going to take him at least eight hours between driving to the airport, flying and getting home to get here. So I need to know if you think this is imminent. And they said, we'll let you know. They checked me again. I was at a three. Then they said, this is probably happening today. So we called him and said, you need to come. Um, he came and then everything calmed down again and <laughs> he was there and he booked. So he was there for a day and then that night things were again calming down. They told me I would be admitted until the baby was born because at this point my health was at risk and they knew they could do something for the baby. So I had I was on magnesium again and <laughs> I was getting the steroids again and then he booked his plane ticket to come home on Wednesday morning. And this was Monday night. And then Tuesday morning, I woke up and had another bleeding episode. And this was the first time it had been so close together. And what they decided was because of the bleeding was triggering preterm labor, bleeding, preterm labor, bleeding. And so at this point, they said, this is probably going to like, this is it. You're probably having it soon but again they didn't want to keep checking me it felt different that that time and they um weren't checking me and I was crying because things were hurting and I didn't want to get an epidural I finally got them to check because I finally had like had enough this is really painful it's not slowing down they checked me and I was at a six and they said all right I think it's time this is happening so I asked for the epidural and while they were giving me the epidural I felt a ton of pressure and I felt a pop and she was ready to come and they 
took the epidural process away and they unsterilized everything and they tried to find her heart rate. They had lost it. So they pushed me down onto the bed because I was in so much pain. They were taking me to the OR so that they had a window to the NICU. And while they were pushing me down the hall to the operating room to deliver the baby, um, they got stuck in the doorway. The bed got stuck. And I remember thinking, right now, I feel like I should push. And I feel like if any of these nurses were talking to me, they would tell me not to push. But they were all very frantic about getting me to the OR. So I didn't push, but then I felt her just slide out onto the bed. And I said to them while we were jammed into the doorway, I said, I think the baby just came out and the nurse lifted up the blanket and in the hallway on the way to the OR, my baby daughter was. was born. And so they had left my husband back at the sterile doors to get scrubs on. So he kind of saw it <laughs> and then... They, I kept saying, did she die? Did she die? Because I had had these other two that I had delivered who were dead. And I kept saying, did she die? They said, no, just look down and you can see her. And they just held her up and she was bright red and had a sad look on her face. And then they passed her through the window to the NICU. And that's how she was born in the hallway. After she was born and they kind of passed her through the window, when was the next time that you actually got to see her? It was a few hours. I was in a lot of pain from the magnesium, um, as my guess, or from a, having a baby. <laughs> I, I'm not sure there was an extreme amount of pain that I was in, and they were trying to figure out why. They were trying to get me to go to the recovery room, and on the way there, they were having me stop by the NICU, from what I remember. And I remember seeing her in a plastic bag and I remember thinking humans don't belong in plastic bags <laughs> and I remember thinking I wonder if my baby died and nobody told me oh interesting uh, we and, put any baby born less than 32 weeks into a plastic bag and the reason we do that is because they are so small and they have just incredible um, it's called insensible heat loss, where they just can get really cold really fast. By putting them inside of a plastic bag, it literally looks like um, a Ziploc with ties at the top or one of those backpacks that kids wear for sporting events or that you get at a marathon or something. Um, and so they just we slide them right inside the, the plastic bag, pull the ties closed, and then we cut holes in the plastic bag in order to get to their finger or their arm or the umbilical cord if we need to in the delivery room because that plastic keeps all that heat inside and they're not just getting cold immediately. So I've never had a mom tell me that 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 the plastic bag made them worry that their baby wasn't surviving. But it's so routine that we don't even think about it. Every every preterm baby goes into a plastic bag to keep them warm. Yep, that was my first. There's a lot of things that happened like that where it's very routine. And from, I was watching like every eyebrow move. Are you gonna tell me bad news? You're gonna tell me good news. Are you scared of talking to me? Are you avoiding me? I was like picking up on so many things that like things were scaring me that they didn't even know. And, and, and now that I've been there for 
not anymore, but <laughs> once I had been there for a while, I understood. And I laughed at some of those things because it was so silly in my head later. But in the moment, it was the most terrifying thing to see my baby in a plastic bag. Or yeah. when the nurses would put on um, the hospital gowns to hold the older babies they never held my baby because she was on minimum stimulation protocol for the first seven days. So in those first seven days when I would see a nurse with an older baby and should put on um, the hospital gown to hold the baby to protect herself and the baby, I thought the baby was sick and they were trying to, I thought they were, I thought the baby was sick. And so I thought these babies around my baby were sick and I knew they couldn't tell me if the baby was sick because of HIPAA. And so I couldn't say, what's wrong with that baby? Is my, is that baby going to hurt my baby? And I thought it was some contagious, horrible thing that that other baby had. And then later, it was so routine for them to just slip the gown on and never even notice. But the first time I saw it, I was so scared that that baby was contagious. Right. I mean, it's amazing those little things that, that we do on a regular basis that are just... I always say the NICU is... Uh, its own little microcosm and we kind of have our own routines and we have our own language and we have our own words that we talk about and within the NICU it all seems very normal but when you first get to the NICU it's very very foreign and I think foreign is scary and I think you're describing what a lot of parents feel when they come into the NICU which is just this overwhelming what is happening? Am I supposed to be worried about this? Am I not supposed to be worried about this? I, you know, just, it's just very foreign. And I came up with a system when we, it was early on. And I remember saying to one of the neonatal nurse practitioners, she was giving me some news about Ella. And I said, all right, scale of one to 10. One is this is not a big deal at all. 10 is you need to call your husband and get him here from Boston because he had flown back home. The first time where they're doing all of these extra measures because her potassium had come back high. They were giving her an EKG and they were doing albuterol treatments and they were taking her blood like every few hours, not every cares but close. And I remember saying to them, what is this on a scale of one to 10? And she said, this is a two, but we have to address it. But for me, it felt like a nine. And, and so it helped me to know, okay, like you're not worried. So I don't need to be worried, but it really did help me to have like lay it out on a scale for me. Like how concerned are you? You see this all the time. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's good. I have gotten to the point where I kind of say, look, I'll tell you when I'm worried. I'm not worried today. This is just preemie baby stuff um, because it's I think it's a little bit confusing sometimes because you'll have a very sick 24 week baby or a very sick bigger baby who has complications and they are critically ill they are very sick but so it's a little a uh, bit of a misnomer to say hey they're stable because they're not they're critically ill but within that that critically ill window we do this all the time. I have lots of other things I can do. I'm not worried at this point in time. So you want to be able to say to parents, I'm not worried, but you can't say they're stable because they aren't. They are critically ill and they're getting a lot of support. So I like your scale system. It did help a lot. And I used it every time something came up. I'd say, all right, scale of one to 10. What is this? Like, because it, it, it is 
what's normal and then what's not normal, but still okay. So tell me about overall her NICU stay. Was it a pretty smooth NICU stay? Did you have a lot of ups and downs and complications just from a medical standpoint with her? So medically, she did very well. And she had the day where her potassium was off. She had a day where her sodium was off. And she had a lot of reflux. And she ended up with thrush. And so she had things happen, but none of them were things that ever made me decide, like, to, like, ask my husband to come from Boston. So it was all, this is, this is normal, not, not ideal, but yeah, very common. This is all very common preemie stuff, but nothing super worrisome. Yep. The, the joke in the NICU with the nurses that got to know her pretty well was, would would whisper and say, don't tell Ella how old she is. She doesn't know. And we don't want her to know because she was eating at, I think we were doing um, non-nutritive breastfeeding at 30 weeks because I didn't have a prolific milk supply and she was rooting and rooting and I had nursed four other babies. And so I was like, I want to nurse my baby. And it took a few different NNPs and a few different nurses of me saying, I think she needs to eat and them explaining to me why that might not be ideally the best situation for her. And then eventually they let me try it and she did really well. And she, she actually left the NICU at 35 weeks. I am so grateful that it went so well because I was alone the whole time. Cause my family was back in Massachusetts starting school and it was right up. We left in October to come back home to Massachusetts and I kept thinking, we're getting into flu season and RSV season. I want to get home before this is a big deal. So other parents that I have talked to talk about how the NICU can feel very isolating. You had this confounding, complicating situation where, you know, your husband and your kids were across the country. And yeah, you were in a familiar place with some family, but how did it feel to be separated so much from your family? Do you think that made your stay more isolating or are in some ways, did it make it so you could just focus on Ella while the older kids were doing their thing at home? Yeah, we were really lucky because um, my in-laws took the kids back and stayed with them for a few weeks. And then my, my mom flew out and took care of them for a month and a half And so they always had a mother figure with them. And so I knew they were taken care of. I knew that they were still getting their hair brushed and they were still getting their homework done. And so I compartmentalized them separate and I was able to get into a very predictable routine. I had a checklist every day of exactly what I did every day. And it was things like pump seven to 10 times, um, take a shower. (laughs) Like it was the very basic basics. Um, Do you remember, do you remember what was on that checklist? Because I bet a lot of moms who are currently in the NICU would love to know what, what that checklist was. Yeah, I do have that list. It is, 
It was pump seven to 10 times every day, take my multivitamin and my other medication that I was still on, eat lactation cookies, sterilize my pump parts that are at the hospital, sterilize my pump parts that are at home, do skin to skin, eat breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner, <laughs> drink at least 64 ounces of water or liquid, write in my gratitude journal, write in my daily summary journal, shower, sleep eight or more hours, make sure I'm praying and charge my phone. <laughs> I love that list. I absolutely love it. And then every two to four days, I would do my laundry, sterilize the kitchen that I was washing my pump parts in. I would write notes to my kids and mail them. I would get new bottles and labels to pump into. I would go through my emails and then I would take out the trash every three to four days. <laughs> oh, I love it. And it, you mean that way you just you you just have it all there and you know if you check off your boxes, you've accomplished what you need to accomplish. And the only things that are on that list are taking care of you and taking care of your baby. Yep. And if I had had my other kids with me, I did miss them very, very, very much. But I knew they were taken care of and I knew that Ella needed me so deeply that it would have been hard to be torn between both worlds. I ended up, as far as isolating, I ended up being best friends with my nurses and my NNPs and my my occupational therapist and the ladies that were at the front desk. And I miss the NICU so deeply that I almost want to cry sometimes. Like I felt like I was comfortable and I knew who I should avoid and I knew who I should talk to and I knew who would be compassionate listener. I knew who would tell me how it was. Like I had it figured out. And so part of me misses the structure of this is exactly where I wash my hands and exactly where I clean my phone and exactly where I sign in and coming back to real life where it's all messy and it's all on me to manage. I miss the structure of the NICU. Yeah, I, I can see that. A lot of people talk about how the NICU becomes family because you're there so much for the the for the time that your baby is in the NICU that these people really do become, you know them like you know your family. Yeah, and I sat there, I was at the NICU on average from 8 to 12 hours every day. And so I had heart to heart with my nurses. Like they, we, they were and still are in a lot of cases some of my very best friends because they know and they went through something that not even my husband was there for. And they, I still text some of them. I I feel like if I was a um, healthcare provider, I would want to know what happened after they left. And so I try to keep my lactation consultant up to date and thank her because I was able to successfully end up breastfeeding and Ella breastfeeds still. And, and so I'll, every few weeks, I'll send her a message and say, things are still going really well. And there were so many tears and so much heartache that went into pumping and pumping and not getting anything and measuring it in like super tiny increments and it's worked. And like, I just, if I were in her shoes, I would want to know that things worked and that this was a life that got started because of work that she passionately did. And I know it's probably thankless and these moms are overwhelmed and they don't always think to like let the, the healthcare providers know like this was a success and I am so grateful for your part in it. That's awesome. We love when 
uh, people bring their kids back um, to the unit and say, hey, look, this is my baby and we're two years later and this is what they look like. It's so much fun to see how things go after kids go home. So I'm sure they really appreciate those those messages because we do like to know what what happens when parents go home. And I've always kind of wondered, maybe you can answer this for me. Sure. I've always wondered how generally, because I know that for me, I can remember specifics about each one of the people who cared for my baby because they're the only ones I've ever seen. But all of the healthcare providers are seeing hundreds of babies a year. I always wonder, do you remember me? Do you just remember that you had babies that are 28 weeks (laughs) and I think it probably differs between parents I'm sure there's some that are forgettable because they weren't there for very long or I don't know so it it really depends on the situation there are babies that I took care of 15 years ago that I will never forget Um, and there are babies that I took care of last year that kind of came in and left and I maybe had one or two interactions with them that I don't really remember. Um, It doesn't make them any less important. I take care of so many babies that I can't remember everybody. I remember people really well for about the first three to five years. And then after that, I mostly remember the kids that were either very sick or had some complications or were in the unit for a very long time. Um, and, and those babies make big imprints and they never, they never leave. They never leave. Well, and that's one thing with the ones that we lost. I feel like that's what's most meaningful is when the babies are remembered. And I feel like that is like nice for parents to know when their baby is remembered, because for us, it's our entire world. And to know that it made a difference to somebody else is just so like, so huge. (laughs) Yeah. I've had um, parents run into me in the mall or as I'm walking out of the bathroom at Target or um, I was at the gym one day working out and, you know, the parents came up and said, oh, you took care of my baby. And and I knew every single one of those parents. And I maybe couldn't have told you exactly how, you know, was your baby 28 and 1 or 29 and 3 or you know, 27 and whatever. But I, but I knew those parents and I knew that I had taken care of their baby and I knew approximately what they were. Um, and the parents were very surprised that, that I remembered their kids. I was standing on my back deck one day and a dad walked past and was like, Dr. Zimmerman. And I was like, oh, hi. He's like, you took care of my baby. So I was like, yeah. And I said their names because it was a set of twins. And he was totally surprised that I, remembered who his babies were, but I remembered who they were. And I think the NICU is a very special place in the hospital. It's different than than the rest of the hospital. These babies are with us for long periods of time, and these families are with us for long periods of time. It's not my baby, but these are my babies, right? Like, I really take ownership and take pride in, in helping these babies go home. And you don't forget that. I think you're right that most parents would probably be surprised to know how much is remembered about them. Yeah, I think that was my favorite part was being able to choose primary nurses that I did not, I don't remember having a nurse that I didn't like, but I do know that I had nurses that I meshed with much better. And 
I think that that's not really a thing in every NICU. And I was grateful that I got to have that big of a say in who took care of my baby and who I got to build a relationship with. And that was huge because there was familiarity. There was investment. They knew the last time she had any apneas or bradycardias because they had her and it, it just made the care so much more individualized. And I felt like they cared about her as a person and me as a mom, instead of just as I'm coming to work and this is my job. I did feel like that with all of them though. I didn't, I didn't ever, I know that might be a unique thing. I know sometimes people don't mesh with their nurses or ask to be taken off of surfaces. And I think that is very valid also, but I was grateful to be able to have some that I got oft often. So they've, they've actually done studies on primary nursing that, that outcomes are better, babies go home sooner, we work them up less for infection because the nurses have such a familiarity with the infants uh, and that you don't get that if you don't have primary nursing. When you now look back on your NICU journey, what do you wish you had known about the NICU that you didn't know? Bandanas are actually their blanket. It's not like... They ran out of blankets and they put your baby in a bandana. I was so confused about the bandana that was wrapped around my baby. But that's really just the size. They don't need the warmth. They just need something to cover their skin. And so that would have been nice to know that that was a thing. <laughs> um, when they say your baby is having cares, it means that they're changing their diaper, they're taking their temperature, they're giving them their feeding, they're checking their soft spot, they're checking their tummy. And I feel like that word cares is thrown around. And I didn't know what that meant, but you learn that one pretty quickly. But okay. I feel like you can't Google that. I tried today to like see what people usually do during cares because I was trying to remember and you can't Google it. Nobody really says. Anyway. I would say um, also to look at everything with gratitude because it's so sad and so scary some days. And, and I had my, I read to you in my checklist, I had a journal that my sister-in-law gave to me and every day I had to sit down and think of five things and I didn't have to write a lot about it, but I had to find five things because there is sad and scary and you see sad and scary and it's easy to be worried. And, and I know the end of my story now. I knew, I know now that she's okay, but in the middle of it, I knew she could have any number of things go wrong. And I wasn't a stranger to those things going wrong in my own life. And so I was always battling fear and trying to continue to remind myself that gratitude and kindness. If I'm frustrated and I yell at someone, I'm going to get a different result than if I'm frustrated and I just ask the questions out of kindness instead of criticism. I feel like it was helpful for me to remember that I was absolutely a key member, if not the most important member in her care, because I was with her all the time and I did see and I can advocate for her when she can't speak herself. No, I, I like the advice to do the gratitude journal. I I wrote a piece on parenting during this coronavirus and, you know, having all of your kids around all the time and trying to 
teach them and you're still trying to work or whatever, it can be really hard. And I put in that piece, you know, at the end of every day, find two things to be grateful for. And if you can't find two things to be grateful for, go back to your phone and scroll through some pictures and find two pictures that make you happy. Because I I do think that trying to be grateful for what is going right can help give you a little bit more resilience for when things aren't going right. And it's it's also just so interesting how it like it turns out different for every person and knowing that on a day so one of my least favorite days was it was all the extremes and it was the day we had found out she had a clear brain scan but because her birth had been so traumatic where she had been born on the bed and didn't have like she we don't know how she came out we weren't sure if she had been jostled in any way and like the fear going into having the scan was so great and then they called me and said her scan is clear right after they had told me we're worried about her blood work and so I never got this like yes like this thing I've been worried about for I think it had been 10 days I didn't even get to celebrate because now I'm worried about another thing. And then like, and then anytime like you take them from the isolate to an open crib, they're going to have more episodes. They're going to get cold. There's going to be a whole new set of setbacks. So even the positives, like we're one step closer, they're wearing clothes. It leads to more sliding back because it's different and it's a change and they have zero energy to deal with change and stress of change and And it's been interesting because as a parent, I know when my kids are about to like have some major growth spurt or like if they're going through something challenging at home or in school, they're going to regress in other ways. But with a preemie baby, they're regressing by not breathing and not and like their heart rates like going crazy. And I like we all do it. Something changes anytime we're under stress. But in a preemie baby, you get to like mark it and see it. And it just is overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, I actually think that's a really great description. I talk about it as the turbulence of the NICU or the two steps forward, one step back, or people talk about it as the roller coaster. But I really like your description of you, even with your older kids, as they're getting ready to have some sort of growth spurt or energy that goes into one area of their life, something else kind of falls back a little bit. And that is very much like a preemie. If they're you know, they have a, a pool of energy. And with that pool of energy, they have to breathe, they have to eat, they have to stay warm, and they have to gain weight. Those are the things you're looking for to go home. And when you put them in an open crib, and they start putting more energy into staying warm, they might not gain as much weight. Or when you ask them to do a little bit more breathing on their own, um, by turning down the support, they may get a little bit more tired and they may have more of these A's and B's, these apnea and bradycardia episodes where their heart rate kind of drops down and you have to gently remind them what their job is. Your job is to breathe. Well, and even as a parent, and I was a NICU mom, like I was fully focused on eating meals that was less focused on like the nutritional value of each meal where typically I might like put exercise on my list it wasn't on my list I was in the NICU like some things had to slide back because I was growing in other areas yeah but some of it had to go off to the side and 
and what it is is different for everyone. There was a Nikki mom I was really good friends with, and she made sure she went to the gym every day because that's one of the things that was on her list of things for self-care and things she needed. And, like, I went and got a massage a few times. Like, you kind of just, like, feel out your own needs. But things will fall by the wayside, and it's uncomfortable, and it's necessary, and it's yeah, you're the kind life of, of NICU. <laughs> yeah, it is. it is very much the life of NICU. Do you think having Ella in the NICU is going to change the way that you parent in any way or change the way you parent her or your older kids? Or do you think it you you as a mom won't change because of this NICU experience? I feel like every experience changes us in some way, and it's whether we let it change us for the good or for the bad. I do believe I am more susceptible to um, anxiety now that I've had the experiences that I've had with my babies. I worry more about symptoms in my body that I probably have had my whole life and now they'll send me into total fear. But I also think, so Ella has turned, she is the sassiest little baby and she it was kind of her nickname in the NICU. There was a nurse that would write on her board if anybody ever erased it, should come back in and write it. And it was kind of this joke. So her, her name was Little Miss Sassy Pants. And she is absolutely Little Miss Sassy Pants. And I feel like that's why she did so well and she came home so fast is I do feel like there is something. Either I was way off on my dates, which I wasn't, and she really was a month older than she is, which she's not. Or she is just a different brand of person. And she, as I watch her, she is extremely needy and wants me to hold her a lot. And she hasn't, she is typically developing so far and there's been no signs or symptoms of anything due to her prematurity. But she is a different kind of baby than I've had before. And she... Every time she is feeling overwhelming to me, is crying a lot, needs to be held, doesn't want to get put down, I think about her experiences, and I think she has been through a lot, and I think that her body is processing that in its own baby way, and I think of my other kids in the same way. They've been through a lot, and they've come up with coping strategies. Ella's is that she wants to be held a lot. Maybe some of my other kids have different coping strategies, but... I think that there's always a reason for the way someone is acting. Um, Even in the NICU with the moms who maybe were having a bad day and reacted poorly to to their doctor or to their nurse, or maybe a nurse who was short with a parent. I feel like if we knew everybody's whole story, like if some, like I know Ella's story or I know my own story, that I, I just feel like as a parent, I will be more compassionate and caring and trying to see the reason why instead of just assuming she's just being hard or she's just, I just feel more compassion towards everyone because I know that we all have something that you can't see from the outside. And I'd get in my car every night and drive home or not my car, somebody's car that I borrowed because I didn't live there. But And I would drive down the road and think, nobody has any idea what my life is like right now. Like, I had to get into a routine where I had to park in the same section of the parking garage because I was there so often that if I parked anywhere different, I would lose my car. (laughs) 
And so like nobody knew. And I was walking in and out of a hospital every day where people were going through the worst days of their lives and the best days of their lives. And I just, I feel like that is what has changed with my whole story of having, being a mom, losing the babies I've lost, having Ella in the NICU. You never know what someone's going through. And always, kindness is always a great idea and always feels good. And I don't know that I always have felt that, or I know that I've felt that way and known that, but I don't know that I've always acted that way. I don't know that I always still act that way, but I know that that's how I want to act. <laughs> well, and I think that matters more than anything, right? Like we all have bad days. We all are going to do things that we wish we hadn't done, you know, the day before. Um, but coming at life, I I try to come at life with the... Um, base understanding that everybody is trying their best and everybody is doing their best within the confines of the circumstances that they're in today. The guy that slams the door in my face as I'm walking into the gym. Okay, yeah, I'm a little miffed at that. It's not that hard to hold the door open, but maybe, you know, he has some horrible thing happening in his life or um, the surgeon that snaps at you, well, maybe they just had a really hard case and they're having a bad day. So if I can try to come at all of my interactions with people from the basis of they are doing the best they can that day with their current circumstances, I am a little kinder and I am a little nicer and I give people a little bit more leeway in terms of expecting them to be so perfect and in response people do that with me too on the days that I'm having a bad day well and to your point I kind of think it's easy to give that grace to other people and it's harder for me to give it to myself so if I have a bad day where I didn't act the way that I knew I wanted to or should have or felt the capacity to, like there were days in the NICU that I just shut my curtain and cried because all the other babies in the room were going home and my baby wasn't going home and wasn't even close to going home. What did I miss or what other things do you really want to tell to mom's and dads and families or support people that might be listening to the Mighty Littles podcast. Uh, any other big pieces of advice or burning things that you want to talk about today? Nope. I think that, <laughs> that was all. Okay. So that's going to do it for the Mighty Littles podcast today. I really hope you guys enjoyed hearing the conversation between Alicia and I about her daughter, Ella, and hearing about how she was able to hold on to that hope and just work through her checklist to get through every day while her baby was in the NICU. If you did enjoy this podcast, I really encourage you to go to iTunes and subscribe and rate and review the Mighty Littles podcast. It actually does make a big difference in terms of other people being able to find the podcast when they're searching for podcasts that are related to their babies and related to the newborn ICU. Thanks again for tuning in and listening, and we hope to see you again in two weeks when our next episode comes out. Have a good day. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.